Jane Austen's Emma, Volume 2, Part 6, Chapters 16 through 18. And this will take us to the end of Volume 2. Chapter 16 is another gathering chapter, and it's also a chapter that gives us another mystery involving Jane Fairfax. The Eltons have received invitations to visit most of the families in the town, and Emma and her father know that they cannot be deficient in their social obligations, especially since they are, with the exception of Mr. Knightley, the highest family in the town. So Emma and Mr. Woodhouse decide to invite the Eltons and some of their friends to a dinner party. They don't want to invite more than eight because more than eight guests make too much noise for Mr. Woodhouse. Harriet Smith declines the invitation as it would be too awkward for her to be there with the Eltons, so this enables Emma to invite Jane Fairfax. Emma is conscience-stricken about her past behavior towards Jane and has resolved to do more for her. Mr. Knightley has also pointed out that the unwelcome attention that Jane is getting from Mrs. Elton is due to the fact that no one else is paying her much attention. Mr. Elton's brother, Mr. John Knightley, is there as an old friend of Jane Fairfax's, and he mentions having seen Jane out in the morning, shortly before it rained, and he hoped that she returned home before she was caught in the rain. You might recall that Mr. John Knightley is always concerned about comfort and going out in adverse weather, as we saw on the evening of that visit to Randall's on a snowy night. He also knows that Jane's health is somewhat precarious anyway. Jane replies that she had only gone to the post office and that she likes to fetch her letters, as this provides the opportunity for pleasant exercise. Mrs. Elton takes it upon herself to decide that this is a bad thing for Jane to do, given her delicate health, and proposes that she have the servant who fetches the Elton's letters also retrieve Jane's. Jane refuses this offer, at first politely, but Mrs. Elton is more and more insistent and does not take no for an answer. Jane replies, You are extremely kind, but I cannot give up my early walk. I am advised to be out of doors as much as I can. I must walk somewhere, and the post office is an object, and upon my word, I have scarcely ever had a bad morning before. My dear Jane, say no more about it. The thing is determined, that is, laughing affectedly, as far as I can presume to determine anything without the concurrence of my lord and master. If I meet with no insuperable difficulties, therefore, consider that point as settled. Excuse me, said Jane earnestly. I cannot by any means consent to such an arrangement so needlessly troublesome to your servant. If the errand were not a pleasure to me, it could be done, as it always is when I am not here, by my grandmamas. So Mrs. Elton looks like she is going to persist, and Jane tries to change the subject by saying, The post office is a wonderful establishment, the regularity and dispatch of it. If one thinks of all that it has to do and all that it does so well, it is really astonishing. They all consent to this, and the conversation progresses to admiration for the ability of the postal employees to decipher the various kinds of handwriting. 
This evolves into a conversation about handwriting, and John Knightley says that he has heard that the same kind of handwriting prevails in a family, noting that Isabella and Emma write very similarly. This leads to a discussion of Frank Churchill's handwriting because Frank writes such beautiful letters. Emma says, Mr. Frank Churchill writes one of the best gentleman's hands I ever saw. I do not admire it, said Mr. Knightley. It is too small, wants strength. It is like a woman's writing. This was not submitted to by either lady. They vindicated him against the base aspersion, end quote. And they wind up discussing further Frank Churchill's particular handwriting style. The chapter concludes as the party is summoned to dinner, leaving Emma wondering why Jane Fairfax is so insistent about fetching her own letters. She feels that there is some mystery connected to Jane's determination, but she can't figure out what it might be. In chapter 17, the ladies return to the drawing room after dinner. It was common in 19th century England for the gentlemen and ladies to separate after dinner, with the men going off to have masculine conversation and perhaps smoke and enjoy brandy, while the women would also withdraw for a time before the two groups would join each other again. In this chapter, we see more of Mrs. Elton's rude, insensitive, and insistent behavior toward Jane Fairfax. She says, Here is April come. I get quite anxious about you. June will soon be here. She is asking if Jane has found a situation yet, that is, employment as a governess. Mrs. Elton learns to her grave disappointment that Jane has not begun making inquiries. Oh, my dear, we cannot begin too early. You are not aware of the difficulty of procuring exactly the desirable thing. I not aware, said Jane, shaking her head. Dear Mrs. Elton, who can have thought of it as I have done? But you have not seen so much of the world as I have. You do not know many candidates there always are for the first situations. I saw a vast deal of that in the neighborhood round Maple Grove, a cousin of Mr. Suckling, and she is off and running. Jane says, I would not wish you to take the trouble of making any inquiries at present. Mrs. Elton persists and Jane refuses for a second time. Thank you, but I would rather you did not mention the subject to her till the time draws nearer. I do not wish to be giving anybody trouble. Mrs. Elton replies, your inexperience really amuses me. Jane comes back a third time. Excuse me, ma'am, but this is by no means my intention. I make no inquiry myself and should be sorry to have any made by my friends. And goes on to say, there are places in town offices where inquiry would soon produce something, offices for the sale, not quite of human flesh, but of human intellect. Oh, my dear, human flesh, you quite shock me. If you mean a fling at the slave trade, I assure you, Mr. Suckling was always rather a friend to the abolition. I did not mean, I was not thinking of the slave trade, replied Jane. Governess trade, I assure you, was all that I had in view, widely different, certainly, as to the guilt of those who carry it on. But as to the greater misery of the victims, I do not know where it lies, End quote. This is an interesting analogy here, and one that was not unique to Austin's novel. 
The analogy between slavery, the trade in human flesh, and the governess trade, or the trade in human intellect, was one often made by both feminists and abolitionists. So what Jane is expressing here is a contemporary argument. The conditions of governesses were quite deplorable, their obligations quite extensive, and their income was shockingly low. This might be an offensive analogy to some, but it was not uncommon in Austen's time. Jane does acknowledge that there is a great difference in the guilt of those who carry on the two practices, but cannot say which victims have the greater misery. Note that Mrs. Elton was very defensive about Jane's allusion to the slave trade, snapping that Mr. Suckling was always rather a friend to the abolition. This defensiveness suggests that there might be something to the hint of the narrators that Mrs. Elton's family may have obtained some of their wealth through the slave trade. In any case, Mrs. Elton is still not convinced and still wants to help Jane, who turns her down a fourth time, saying, I am very serious in not wishing anything to be attempted at the present time for me. I am exceedingly obliged to you, Mrs. Elton. I am obliged to anybody who feels for me, but I am quite serious in wishing nothing to be done till the summer. For two or three months longer, I shall remain where I am and as I am. At this point, Mr. Weston arrives. He has been in London on business and has walked directly to Hartfield. Everyone is glad to see him except one, as revealed in this passage in the free indirect discourse. John Knightley only was in mute astonishment that a man who might have spent his evening quietly at home after a day of business in London should set off again and walk half a mile to another man's house for the sake of being in mixed company till bedtime, of finishing his day in the efforts of civility and the noise of numbers was a circumstance to strike him deeply. A man who had been in motion since eight o'clock in the morning and might now have been still, who had been long talking and might have been silent, who had been in more than one crowd and might have been alone. Such a man to quit the tranquility and independence of his own fireside and on the evening of a cold, sleety April day, rush out again into the world. End quote. So once again, we see Mr. John Knightley's curmudgeonly attitude towards social gatherings. In chapter 18, Mr. Weston tells Mrs. Elton that she should soon have the opportunity of meeting his son. They have had some letters from Frank Churchill, who is soon to pay them another visit. Mrs. Elton takes the opportunity to comment that, since Frank's last visit, he will find an addition to the Society of Highbury when he comes again, that is, if I may presume to call myself an addition, but perhaps he may never have heard of there being such a creature in the world. This was too loud a call for a compliment to be passed by, and Mr. Weston, with a very good grace, immediately exclaimed, My dear madam, nobody but yourself could imagine such a thing possible, not heard of you. I believe Mrs. Weston's letters lately have been full of very little else than Mrs. Elton. He had done his duty and could return to his son. When Frank left us, continued he, and so on. 
Mr. Weston, in the conversation with Mrs. Weston, tells her a bit about the situation with regard to Mrs. Churchill and notes that she has no fair pretense of family or blood. She was nobody when he married her, barely the daughter of a gentleman. But ever since her being turned into a Churchill, she has out-Churchilled them all in high and mighty claims. But in herself, I assure you, she is an upstart. This mention of an upstart provokes an immediate reaction from Mrs. Elton, who says, I have quite a horror of upstarts, going on to give the example of, quote, people of the name of Tupman very lately settled there and encumbered with many low connections, but giving themselves immense airs and expecting to be on a footing with the old established families, end quote. She goes on to say that, by their manners, they evidently think themselves equal even to my brother, Mr. Suckling, who happens to be one of their nearest neighbors. Of course, it is ironic that she is making this impassioned condemnation of upstarts and of people who give themselves immense airs and expect to be on a footing with the old established families because this description fits Mrs. Elton perfectly. This might remind us a little of the Coles, whom we saw earlier in the novel, who gave the dinner party. They are a family who are well thought of, but who obtained their wealth through trade, and they are now trying to increase their respectability by forming connections with the more established families in the area. The difference is that the Coles seem to be regarded more highly in the community and do not behave in such a vulgar fashion as Mrs. Elton. <laughs> 